The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There's a memoir by one of the jail warders, a man named Thomas Martin later on, who talks about he would, at, for his nighttime inspections in the jail, he would look in the keyhole of everyone's prison door. And when he would see Wild, what Wild would we be doing is walking. And Wild was a large man. He was bulky and he was uh, six foot three. And he could take three steps in the prison cell. What uh, uh, Patty Smith later called it, it was a, a rectangle of humiliation, his cell. Mm. And he could take three steps and then would have to turn and walk back the three steps and then walk again. And he would observe him pacing. He, that Warder Martin called Wilde the poet. Mm. And he would observe him pacing back and forth. And every once in a while, he would laugh and be looking to the stars. And what this Warder imagined was that Wilde was in his own mind out of the prison cell and in the galaxy and exploring the far ranges of his imagination. Wow. And and he talks about later, he says, I didn't see him after he left. I don't know what he was like before he got to prison or I don't know what he was like after he left prison. But in prison, he was as close to a saint as anyone that I ever met. Wow. Just imagine this, if you had no expression for your thoughts for a year and a half, and then all of a sudden you get them. Now what we're getting with De Profundis is just the spilling out of all that's been in his head for all of this time. Hmm. That's Scott Carter, author of the new play Wild Man, talking about Oscar Wilde as a prisoner. Even the best biopics often skip over this stretch of Oscar Wilde's life. Maybe because it's too painful. It's not as entertaining as Wilde taking literary London by storm or traveling through the American West, delivering lectures to cowboys and coal miners. It's not as tragically romantic as the doomed love affair between Wilde and his youthful paramour, Bosey, with Bosey's father playing his villainous part. And it's not as dramatic as The Trials where Oscar's witty confidence both charms us and dooms him. Wild in prison is none of that. It's a reminder of how cruel society can be to an artist, to a transgressor against norms, to a human being, and a reminder of how genius can rise above all this pain, can survive it, can surpass it. It might be the most painful part of the Oscar Wilde story, but it's also the most profound Scott Carter, and the writing of De Profundis, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here 
here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. A great, great episode today. A fun one for me. It was recorded a few weeks ago. You'll hear in this episode in the interview that Scott Carter, my guest today, says something like, this is a play you're going to hear soon, or words to that effect. I did hear the play, which, as it happens, was being workshopped or previewed right here in Washington, D.C. I was lucky to be invited and very glad I could attend. I showed up late every time something big happens or important happens. Some chaos in my life interferes and screws things up. (laughs) I'm like the, the sex pistol of podcasting. This is why I don't bet on myself, people. This is why I want to short... Jack Wilson stock. I would make a killing. Anyway, I had a minor catastrophe that prevented me from getting there on time, so I missed a few lines and embarrassed myself turning up late at this very wonderful affair. But it was okay. A Kennedy Senator, a Kennedy Senator, Kennedy Center play. That's a very DC sort of event. It was Fantastic. The play was sensational. The reading of it, the actors brought it to life, and the reception afterwards made me glad to be alive and out and about after this long winter of pandemic we've had, this two-year hibernation. I flew on a plane recently. That was a similar feeling. Went to Chicago, where I bought Gwendolyn Brooks, her poetry, at my favorite bookstore with a hotel, stayed in a hotel that had a vinyl record player and vintage blues albums in every room. Hot damn. I was in heaven. Okay, back to the play. It was excellent. Wild man. And afterwards, I got to hang out with the actors a bit, and of course with Scott Carter, the author, an excellent host and raconteur, who today is our guest and will be again soon. He has another play in the works that you can see. We'll have him back on the podcast to discuss it. But in the meantime, you can stream it. The play is about Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Leo Tolstoy, all of whom advanced their own version of the Gospels. That play is called Discord, and it's going to be mounted and streamed by the Philadelphia Lantern Theater in a production that runs from November 4th to December 19th. So put that on your calendars and get ready to stream. So let's get right to it. We've talked about Oscar Wilde a lot here and more to come. But let me set the stage for you for this episode, a reminder of where we are in his life. He was born in Ireland, traveled to Oxford in England, became kind of a dandy known for his wit and had also distinguished himself as a scholar. He wrote a portrait of Dorian Gray, and he wrote some successful plays. And then, in one incredible stretch, he went from being the toast of the West End to, quote, hard labor, hard fare, and a hard bed, end quote. The Importance of Being Earnest debuted in February of that year, a smash hit. Three months later, Wilde was in jail. Showdown with his young lover's father, two trials later, and he was in prison. Hard prison, not gentleman's prison or a politician's minimum security kind of thing. Not the good fellas shaving garlic with a razor blade and listening to opera. This was a prison cell. He was broken. And yet, eventually, he got to write a page a day, one page 
reviewed by his jailers, submitted to them and read by them. He formed it as a letter to Bosey, but it's now known as De Profundis. It's astonishing prose, a document of a mind regenerating itself piece by piece, page by page. I'll confess that I struggle with Oscar Wilde. I admire him, admire the witticisms of his plays, but I don't love them. I don't love, love them. They leave me a little cold, as if the mask is all there is. A mask I want to see behind, but that's not what the writer wants in my reading. It's mask and more mask and more mask. Enforced mask. De Profundis is different. There's a kind of mask there. Wilde is struggling. He's agitating and agonizing. He invents. He shades. He argues. But he's real. At least that's how I read it. Scott Carter reads it that way too, or at least I think he does. That's how I interpret his play Wild Man, which takes us into this second act of Wilde's life, the dark one, the spiral down, the descent into prison, and maybe the recovery there of something essential, something human, some light that arises from that pit. We will see. But first, let's take a quick break and hear from a listener who grew up in the USSR. Remember our talk with Yang Wang, who grew up in Mao's China? Think of this as a companion piece, a bit, the two of them, or maybe the three of us. I'll throw myself in there, all growing up in the Cold War in America, China, and the USSR, all of us experiencing that Cold War in our different ways, and all of us coming to literature, uniting, in a way, thanks to the internet and the podcast, in 2021. We will have that letter after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Subject, thank you for the deep dive. Dear Jack, first, I'd like to thank you for the exceptionally great podcast. I discovered it only a couple of weeks ago. I am new, but already a huge fan. I love everything about it. The knowledge about literature, of course, but also your noble and non-judgmental style, honesty, 
and calmness. That's how it feels for me. In any case, listening to your podcast makes me think the kind of deep thinking which I have a complicated relationship with. Maybe I'll explain later what I mean by that. But for now, just to point out that it's not an obvious outcome of podcasts for me. I am going to write a little too much about myself, so my sincere apologies in advance. Okay, well, let me interrupt there and say not to worry that you're going to write a little too much about yourself. That's why I'm here. I do a lot of talking. Once in a while, I can be quiet and listen. Back to the email. My name is Anna, and I'm 48. I've lived in Israel for the last 31 years, originally from the former USSR. I was a heavy reader in my childhood and youth and became an occasional reader in the last decades. Why? The simple answer is life happens and the need for prioritizing. Here are more detailed reasons. One, reading is a single activity and giving friends and family, which are great and my loved ones, leaves very little room for diving into solitude for long. By some non-conscious way, people around not taking, well, a leave-me-alone-for-a-couple-of-hours-or-days state, or at least didn't find reading as a cause not to interrupt, which makes me give up on trying to devote myself to a fictional world in favor of the real one. The second reason for my reading shortage are the not-so-good choices of books. I actually had some heavy reading phases during the last years, which all had begun with reading a really good book that made me want to read more, and they all ended with picking two or three not-so-engaging ones in a row. Now, thanks to your podcast, the second problem is solved, for I made a long list of must-reads from listening to the episodes. I was a writer, too. Not a real one. In fact, I'd never considered myself as a writer or even a wannabe one. I've considered once becoming a journalist, but in a more idealistic way, traveling the world, learning about people and cultures. Also, I wanted to be a poetess in my early teens as I was fascinated by Pushkin and Sergei Yasenin. There are not too many advantages of growing up in the Soviet Union. I left for Israel at the age of 17 after finishing high school. Being exposed to the great classic Russian literature at an early age is one of them. Another one is the astonishing nature of Russia and the Ukraine. Anyway, I wrote poetry in my teens and 20s, maybe a little after that. Later on, I wrote short passages of half a page or one page length, which are like poetry and prose, some thoughts, feelings, senses. It gave me the best feeling ever. I was drained and happy, troubled and peaceful, broken and complete, all at the same time. But I rarely do it. This also has two major reasons. One, that I came to have no language to write with. Russian is my native language and was the only one I knew until 17 but I've been using it very little for more than 30 years now. When I left the USSR, it was 1990, the last years of an empire, Gorbachev's time. I've watched it crumble from the 16 or 17 years old perspective. Everything turned out to be a big, cruel lie. Not fake news, 
a fake 70-year life. In my last year in high school, they took all history and civil books. The teachers didn't know what to teach us. We were sitting in classes, turning pages of newspapers. Both the students and the teachers were trying to understand what is going on and what does it mean. After years of brainwashing, everything turned out to be a lie. In addition, we knew close to zero about the rest of the world. So when I came to Israel, there was the whole of the world for me to discover. I've studied Hebrew and English as a necessity to function, to make a living, and to understand. I trained myself to read only in English or Hebrew because it's the best way to learn a language, and I grew to like it. But as sufficient as I am in those languages now, it's not enough for the art of writing. My vocabulary is poor, and if it's not work or casual, life-related, I'm struggling to turn my thoughts into written sentences. I've tried to write in all three languages, Russian, Hebrew, English, but it just doesn't flow in any of them. The second reason why I'm not writing more often is a more personal one. I'm scared by the places that it takes me to. I'm afraid of losing the sense of reality, an ability to do my duties. Also, it's a lonely place. Take this letter as an example. I can be much more fun than all this. Anyway, those are my thoughts being inspired by listening to your podcast. I am thankful to you for putting me in a self-aware mode, for digging into the honesty with myself, and for being the person I have an urge to share with. Finally, speaking of your podcast, I truly love it. I'm an unsophisticated reader, so please refer to my comments as one. I love Haruki Murakami, and I was glad to hear how highly you and your colleague Mike think of his works. I love fantasy books and C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia in particular, so I very much enjoyed an episode about him. I was blown away by your episodes and your appreciation for the great Russians, such as Gogol and Chekhov. Those are my favorites, too. I loved reading them at school, and I read them more not as part of the Russian literature school program, but for myself. Alexander Grin and Sergei Dovlatov, more recent Russian writers, who are my personal favorites. Also, I love Paul Auster. He was a big deal in the 90s, and for me, rightly so. The Music of Chance, Moon Palace, The Invention of Solitude are great books that I've enjoyed reading. Maybe you have an episode about Paul Auster, and I haven't gotten to it yet. And if not, is it in your plans? And finally, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He is my favorite writer. I love his books about journeys and aviation, and The Little Prince, for me, is the greatest book of all. Would you consider making an episode about him with sincere admiration, Anna? Mm. Anna. Anna, Anna. I, wow, I was blown away by your email, which moved me incredibly. I'm so honored that you found the podcast. So thankful. Thank you so much for those kind words. Now, you and Yang Wang are spiritual cousins. She lost her language too when it came to writing. It's not honest, her native language, Chinese. It deceives her. She doesn't trust her own mind 
when she thinks of stories in Chinese. And for you, with your 20th century experience taking you from the Soviet Union to Israel, I think it's similar. And it makes me feel fortunate. I have English with this American background. It has not betrayed me. I can think and I feel free to think, but that doesn't mean things couldn't change for me and other Americans as well. I just recorded an interview with one of my favorite guests I've ever had, Farah Jasmine Griffin. Man, boy, wow. We will have her coming up soon. People, I am telling you, this year, 2021, has been a year of blessings when it comes to the people I've had a chance to talk to for this podcast. She's at the top of the list. Well, it's a crowded list. A lot of 1As and 1Bs and 1Cs. A lot of ties for first. It's like a 40-way tie for first. But she's up there. I think you're going to like that episode. I'm going to spoil part of it. I think we're going to run it in December near the holidays. I'm going to spoil part of it because it fits right into this topic. She had a father who died tragically young when she was quite young, but he had put works in her hands. He was a ship welder who worked in Philadelphia. He knew the hypocrisy of America and also the promise He had her memorize the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address, books like that, founding documents before she went to school. He was mostly self-taught, a guy with a book in his back pocket, the sort of blue-collar worker who would get caught reading, reprimanded, stop reading on the job, that kind of thing. He put those works in her hands and turned her, his little girl, into one of the great figures of wisdom in our time, a professor, a scholar, an author. Her book is extraordinary. It's called Read Until You Understand, which was his advice to her and which carried her through to this day. Read Until You Understand, the profound wisdom of black life and literature is the full title. It's a very American book, celebrating America while being clear-eyed about America's shortcomings and failures. It's painfully honest. I was reading it, talking to her, and I asked her, why literature? Why do you focus on fiction and poetry? Why didn't she follow the path of nonfiction, political speeches, sermons, history? Why look for truth in literature? Here's what I had in mind. Literature tells stories. Literature lets us see ambiguity. Literature moves us. It lets us think two things at once, simultaneously, even when they're in contradiction. It points out those contradictions and asks us to live with them, to live with them in the balance, to understand them as contradictions. Literature engages us intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, viscerally. Life is big, I thought, and literature is big too. It lets us be big and bigger. It grows to meet us, to match us, and then it helps us grow, and then it meets us at our larger size. That's what I had in mind. That's what I thought she might say. Her answer was much simpler and more direct. Language, she said. It's the language. Now, maybe her answer was the same as mine, but she said it in fewer words, which would be typical. (laughs) (laughs) Always count on Jack Wilson to say in a paragraph what could be said in a single word. Language. But I'm thinking of that. When I say that I still have English, 
I'm acknowledging that there are a lot of words that are under attack, a lot of thinking that's under attack, a lot of freedom of thinking that's under attack always by governments, by societies, by companies, by power. Power, that's what power, the pressure is on to accept things that aren't true, to define terms in ways that are inaccurate, to be dishonest to one's fellow humans and to oneself. And the language can break like a decrepit old dam, and literature is not free to rush in. The reservoir is not there. It's dried up. Sounds like that's something like what's happened to dear Anna with her Russian and to our dear friend Yang Wang with her Chinese as well. Yang pushed hard to refill her reservoir in her adopt, well, I was going to say her adopted tongue, English, but it's really more than a tongue. It's an adopted mind, a kind of framework, a kind of flow that lives within our mind. She found it. I'm hopeful that Anna will find that as well. Your thoughts are beautiful, Anna. They are literate, literary. They are true. And they are you. Thank you for sharing them with me. And now we turn to someone who had every reason to give up his language, a broken man who was also trying to pick himself back up, pick up the pieces of himself in a different sense and not due to the Cold War. This was decades before, but still he's an inspiration, just like Farah Jasmine Griffin, just like Yang Wang, and just like our listener, Anna. Oscar Wilde in prison with Scott Carter after this. Joining me now from Los Angeles is Scott Carter, who for years has been a highly successful television producer of interview shows hosted by Bill Maher and Bob Costas, among other projects. Scott is also a playwright. His play Discord told the story of three historical figures, Charles Dickens, Leo Tolstoy, and Thomas Jefferson, who all advanced their own version of the New Testament. Scott's newest play, Wild Man, draws on Oscar Wilde's post-conviction cri de cœur, De Profundis, Scott Carter, welcome to the History of Literature. It is a delight to talk to you, Jack, I, and I am a longtime fan of History of Literature oh. and uh, now a, a first-time speaker. Oh, thank you. So, what does De Profundis give us? What's attractive about this work? Well, first of all, the setting by which it came into being. Mm. Wild, you, you think about this. Take the supreme conversationalist of his age— Put him in solitary confinement for two years. Yeah. Deprive him of conversation with others except for he can um, after three months, he can write one letter. And after three months, he can talk. He can have guests come to his jail for 20 minutes, no more than 20 minutes. 
and not only is it solitary confinement meaning an absence of 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 socializing but but it's also a sadistic uh prison design hmm. uh that was meant to break people so two examples that are just terrifying which are number 1 all of the prison guards in victorian prisons wear velvet slippers why so that prisoners in their individual cells would not hear footsteps mm. because footsteps are human and they did not wish them to have any notion of, of humanity. This was, and this was called the system. And it's something that he complained about when his friends visited. It's the system. Also yeah. part of the system was that they got out of their cells for one hour a day and they walked around the yard Wilde referred to it as the fool's parade. But because of the system, they were forced to walk always clockwise because the <laughs> Victorian prison designers thought that if you walk counterclockwise, you might think to yourself, you are getting time back. Wow. And they didn't want that to happen. Or here's a, here's a third detail <laughs> is that, is that once a day and twice on Sundays, they went to chapel and they were forced, all forced to sing. But the pews that they sat in had partitions so that you never saw the prisoner to your right or to your left or in front of you. Because, because again, the notion is to deprive you of any humanity during mm. your time. So we take this man who is, as I said, this he's heads and shoulders above everybody else, uh, supreme conversationalist of his age, and he's deprived for two years. Now, at a year and a half, the British authorities begin to get worried that when he gets out of prison, if he is a madman, if he is insane and or a, a, an imbecile by the time he gets out of prison, that it will look bad on it. Look, it will reflect badly upon them. Right. And so what they do is they begin to loosen up the prison rules. So what they decide to do, first of all, they they change the head of the prison that he's in, Reading Jail. They change it and it goes from being the most sadistic man, a man who Wilde later said that if he hadn't punished someone before breakfast, he did not enjoy it. Mm. And they replaced him with this Major Nelson, who eventually was inviting Wilde to have tea with his with his wife at, at their home next to the prison and, and was treating Wilde in a very humane way and started being much more liberal in letting him have access to books. But the main thing and what what caused the produced the actual um, manuscript of De Profundis is they began to loosen up the rules about his writing letters. Mm. So it still had to be a letter that he was going to write, but they only allowed him one page at a time. And so he would have this page and I have a photocopy of this manuscript. It's 80 pages. And you see him very often making all these amendments before he turned in that one page mm. and got the next one. And you also see in this a lot of redundancies because he can't go back and remember what he already said. Right. But what we're getting out of this and what feels so contemporary is for a year and a half, he has been brooding about how he got there. Yeah. Whose fault it is. And then he's, as he gets closer to being released in May of 1897, he's beginning to think about uh, how he's going to be on the outside. And so when they finally give him paper and pen, and he's allowed to begin these 80 pages, so it's over a period of two or three months that he's, two and a half months or so that he's writing 
what we now know as De Profundis, a title given by his literary executor and friend Robert Ross. We're getting this guy. There's a memoir by one of the jail warders, a man named Thomas Martin later on, who talks about he would at for his nighttime inspections in the jail, he would look in the keyhole of everyone's prison door. And when he would see Wilde, what Wilde would we be doing is walking. And Wilde was a large man. He was bulky and he was um, six foot three and he could take three steps in the prison cell. What uh, uh, Patty Smith later called it. It was a rectangle of humiliation, his cell. Mm. And he could take three steps and then would have to turn and walk back the three steps and then walk again. And he would observe him pacing. He, that Warder Martin called Wilde the poet. Mm. And he would observe him pacing back and forth. And every once in a while, he would laugh and be looking to the stars and what this Warder imagined was that Wilde was in his own mind out of the prison cell and in the galaxy and exploring the far ranges of his imagination. Wow. And and he talks about later, he says, I didn't see him after he left. I don't know what he was like before he got to prison or I don't know what he was like after he left prison. But in prison, he was as close to a saint as anyone that I ever met. Wow. Just imagine this, if you had no expression for your thoughts for a year and a half, and then all of a sudden you get them. Now what we're getting with De Profundis is just the spilling out of all that's been in his head for all of this time. So he has to make it a letter. So he addresses the letter to Bozy, his lover, who was a co-captain of this catastrophic uh, right. ruination, ruination. And when I began to, I had... I had written a, a play about Wilde at a different time, a very light piece about when he first toured America when he was in his 20s. And I at one point was going back to look over that and see if, do I want to put energy into this now? And so I was going back over all of Wilde's writings and uh, I saved De Profundis for the last because I was afraid of it. Mm, how come? It is a nightmare that one is going into. Yeah, right. You're living the nightmare. But as I've gotten older... I have become more uncomfortable with the nightmares. So, for instance, on this Shakespeare project that I'm working on now, this is a sentence I thought I never would say. I, a few months ago, I watched eight King Lears in a week. <laughs> okay. I never thought that I would get comfortable <laughs> with yeah. watching eight King Lears, but you get comfortable with watching it. And, and it seems like, oh, oh, a natural progression. Oh, this, oh, I've seen this happen before. And now how is this next scene going to be done by this different director? It's, it all becomes fascinating. Wilde is like Lear in that instantly everything is taken away from him. And so as he writes this letter, he starts by Dear Bosey. And then the first 34 of the 80 pages are just a tirade mm -hmm. against Bosey. But when I was going back and rereading all of Wilde's work and saved De Profundis till the end because I was intimidated by it, I got a copy of the 1905, the first time it was published, I got a copy of the 1905 edition. And because Bosey was still alive and the family was litigious, yeah. the first edition in 1905 only has about half of the 80 pages. And so I opened this volume and I came across these words, suffering is one long moment. We cannot divide it by seasons. 
We can only record its moods and chronicle their return. With us, time itself does not progress. It revolves. It seems to circle round one center of pain. The paralyzing immobility of a life, every circumstance of which is regulated after an unchangeable pattern, and so that we eat and drink and walk and lie down and pray or kneel, at least for prayer, according to the inflexible laws of an iron formula. <sighs> and I was just struck by that, this yeah. beginning. And then I was kind of hypnotized to keep reading. Yeah. And it's so, on the one hand, I've read, I don't know if this, I can't remember now if this was in the introduction or in some other research I did, but some people had said being assigned to prison with manual labor is too severe. And other people have said, you don't understand what solitary confinement is like. That's the real punishment. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to break him. And clearly something about his whether it was because he was allowed maybe that's what saved him or maybe he just had the inner strength he was able to write this amazing piece of prose where it it doesn't feel like the prose of someone whose mind has been broken and in some ways what you just read in some ways i prefer that to the to the oscar i hate to say that almost but it, the oscar wilde of you know when he was at the highest of highs and he was putting these plays out and writing dorian gray and when he was a free man and and on the rise and becoming this celebrity it feels a little flip compared with a sentence or a paragraph like you just read. It feels, you know, it doesn't feel as serious. It feels like he's playing a, a bit of a game and a bit of a, it's a bit of a dodge. What you just read is so profound. And is that the way it feels to you when you look at Oscar Wilde's work? Am I missing something about his earlier work? Or does it feel like he's settled into a kind of depth of artistry here that is really moving and and a much different Oscar Wilde than we see in his plays. I agree with everything that you've just said. And in De Profundis, he agrees with everything mm. you just said. Yeah, right. What What's remarkable about De Profundis is it's like a prose symphony mm. with different movements. So we have the first 34 pages where he's railing against Bosey, and that's one movement. Yeah. Then the next movement describes the miserable loneliness and torture of prison life. And over the 80 pages, he goes from blaming himself and then often he will shift back like the next, like, like he may have blamed himself for a day or two or a page or two, but then he's <laughs> got to get back to Bozy and he's mad at, not only at Bozy, he's mad at Bozy's father. He's mad at, mad at Bozy's mother for not having raised him differently. He's yeah. mad at uh, how much money of his that Bozy spent and never paid back that Bozy said he would cover the court costs and never did. And then he'll have another change of heart. Mm. And then, oh, but he wants to get back with him. Oh, he wants to see him again. Yeah. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Then he talks about, I can't see you. That's going to be ruination also. So there's something so contemporary and so human about how he's not in control of the story he's telling. He's almost a servant to the wild imagination and memory that he possesses, plus the remarkable range of reference that he is able to make. Mm. He can go back to the Greeks and he goes to Shakespeare. Yeah, right. And then one of the most fascinating sections in De Profundis to me 
is where he talks about once Major Nelson takes over the governorship of, of Reading Jail, Wild for, for the Christmas, the last Christmas that he's in prison, he's given a, a Bible in Greek. And, and actually what he, he says, um, of late, I have been studying the four prose poems about Christ. At Christmas, I was given a Greek testament. And each morning, after I clean my cell and polish my tins, I read a dozen verses of the Gospels taken by chance. It is a delightful way to open the day. In the Greek, the pleasure is doubled because we probably have the actual terms used by Christ. It was long supposed that Christ talked in Aramaic, but now we know that the Galilean peasants, like our Irish peasants, were bilingual and spoken Greek, and it is a delight to think that Plato might have understood him and Socrates reasoned with him. So what Wilde is doing in that remarkable paragraph is he's linking up his encyclopedic knowledge of the Greeks. Yeah. And, and he's now marrying it with his lifelong fascination with specifically the Catholic Church, but also Christ, not merely, or I won't say not merely, but not as a religious figure, but as an artistic figure. One of the comments that he makes is that Christ was a poet and his entire life was a most wonderful poem. And by seeing him that way, He's unifying Christ's suffering with his own suffering. Mm. And he's hallowing now the model of the artist as the supreme expression of humanity. And there is a tug for any of the, your listeners who haven't heard the wonderful episode that you did on the three trials of Wild, And this conversation is kind of a, a follow up to that. You're watching someone who has this extraordinary imagination, and it's almost in defiance of reality, so that as the trials are progressing, or or the, the card, the insulting card is left by Boise's father at Wilde's club, and everyone, Shaw, Harris, his lawyers, everybody tells him, do not bring a suit against your, uh, against Boise's father, it will only be ruination for you, and he proceeds. What we see in jail and what you were talking about just now that I think is fascinating is that Wilde, it may be even aware of the reality and is defiant of it as a an expression of personal loyalty to his core as an artist. One might expect that he would be railing against the system. Uh, these were incredibly punitive laws, uh, which we today would find uh, uh, outrageous. He was placed there by a judge in a court and, you know, and so on. And instead, it seems to be he's wrestling on the page with his love for Bozy, Bozy's bad advice or Bozy's weakness of character that Wilde has allowed himself and his love for Bozy to sort of manipulate him into this corner, into this position. And yet, even though it's addressed to Bozy, I feel like I don't feel like I'm eavesdropping when I read it. Do you feel like he's writing? Does he have an agenda other than just writing a letter to Bozy that is venting? Does he have some kind of is it an artistic agenda? Is it trying to set the record straight for history or what? What do you feel is motivating Wild here? Well, I think it's all of what you just mentioned. Plus, mm. not too long before uh, he began writing De Profundis, he was advised to write a petition to the to the governors, to the Board of Governors, mm -hmm. requesting an early release 
Yeah. Which, which ironically, they then said, well, this is so well written that, that, <laughs> that he could obviously not be going insane. Yeah. <laughs> because, because he's such a great writer. He's retained his, his, his level of writing skills. And he also knows that when he turns in that one page, he knows it's going to be read by authorities. Mm, right. And so we can't, and, but that being said, he can't help himself. Yeah. In the same way that he could not help himself from being entertaining on the witness stand in his trials, which helped doom him. He was, he, his fatal mistakes were going for a laugh from the courtroom yeah. and, and sealing his own doom. And it's, and sometimes you feel he's like Lenny Bruce, who yeah. at one, at one point for Lenny towards the end, when he was getting up on stage and, and reading from his court transcripts. And so for Lenny, at some point, he was no longer an artist. He had blended if I'm on stage and something's going through my head about my personal life, that should be intrinsically entertaining and warrant the price of admission for all the people who come to see me. Uh, right. <laughs> it's, and and, and uh. the other part, and the other part about this is that often it, it, one of the other reasons that this fascinated me was because there are many movies about Wilde. There are uh, several plays about Wilde. In your Three Trials episode, you mentioned The Judas Kiss by David Hare, which I saw in New York with uh, Rupert Everett. In all of them, the prison is given short shrift. Mm. In other words, very, very often what happens is the trial is the climax. Yeah. And then you see him going into prison and the door slamming. And then maybe there's 30 seconds of montage of suffering. Right. And, and, and then you see him coming out of broken man. Shuffling around Paris. Shuffling. We get him to shuffling around Paris. And and what's remarkable about De Profundis is he goes through this entire arc. It's like almost he's the, the, on the Campbell hero journey or he's doing 12 steps or something. Yeah. Or it's the station of the cross because where he gets to towards the end is he starts talking about, I have to forgive everyone who helped me get here. If I'm going to leave here without any bitterness in my heart. And the only way that, and so he, he sets himself up a goal in, in the final pages. And the goal is he's going to create a beautiful work and he wants to be united, reunited with his family. He has a wife and two sons who have now changed their last name to Holland hmm. and have moved to Switzerland. And he wants to get back with them. He doesn't want to see Bose anymore. He, he recognizes, although he keeps going back, when can we meet? When can we meet? And then the next page is, I can't go back to him. That's going to be ruination for me. And, and also he's appreciative of his friends. And they've raised about a thousand pounds. They've searched out a little town in France for him to go to where he can live for the first year or so. And indeed what's heartbreaking about the story and what intrigues me the most is when he gets out of prison, he gets out in, at the end of May, the first, all through that spring and summer, everything's great. Everything is great. He, in the little village, he loves the peasants. He's charmed by them. He's, he holds a party at one point on uh, Queen Victoria's birthday for, for the children of the village. He is in the best, according to his friend, Frank Harris, he's in the best shape of his life. He's swimming twice a day. Mm. He's suntan. He's, he lost a lot of weight in prison, which 
at one point during one of the visits, Harris says to Wilde, something like, well, you, you've lost a lot of weight. That's good. And then Wilde's reaction to Harris is, he acts like I've been in a resort. Mm, <laughs> and, right. <laughs> which is which is not what it was. Yeah. Um, so and and he writes when he gets out of prison. He the the two main things he writes are he writes two long letters to the editor of the Daily Chronicle describing prison conditions and actually contributes to getting Parliament to rethink its its attitude towards its prison system. And then the other is the only poem for which he's remembered now, which is the Ballad of Reading Jail, oh, which right. is yep. epic. Yeah. And so, and so he, he, he is very hopeful. He's hope his, his wife says, you can't meet us again for a year. So she puts this, this limit on his ability. He can't go to Switzerland and meet with the family. He's got to wait a year. And so what happens is by time we get to the fall, all, all of the good things have gone away that, that all during the summer, his friends in Paris and his friends in London all came to this little town Berneval in France to visit him. And so for two or three days, they'd stay in the local hotel and they would have wonderful meals. And uh, it, that was great. Well, after one or two visits, they stopped coming. After after a while, he stops being charmed by the peasants. They begin mm. to bore him. Mm. After a while, he despairs of ever getting reunited with his family. And then one of the most telling aspects is Ballad of Reading Jail becomes a huge hit and he gets nothing from it. Mm. Because there's a lien on all of his earnings. Oh. And it's controlled by Bozy's father. Oh, right. I want to say one more thing about De Profundis, and then I want to ask you about what it was like to put it together for Wildman, the decisions you made. I think people have sort of avoided reading it and maybe have the mistaken impression that just because of the circumstances through under which it was written and just knowing the topic that it's it's too painful to read that it 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 feels like you're seeing him in this raw laid bare kind of state that it's awkward and and embarrassing and and we should uh, avert our eyes out of respect for him or something and I, I think an analogy that I want to make and see what you think of this I'm kind of reminded of when Lady Gaga uh, started playing the piano and singing without the makeup. And people said, this is a reminder of what a brilliant musician she is. Lady Gaga, she's a brilliant pop star. But this is, you know, underneath all of that is this musical ability. She's very gifted. And Wilde is kind of like that with literature and with with thinking, that you you see him in not as the sort of a frothy... Oscar Wilde with the the twinkle in his eye and the the half smirk on his on his face that you might get from the plays but you see him just what a brilliant mind he had and it doesn't feel to me like you're you're just hearing some lewd confession that that uh we would all be better off if he had been able to keep to himself it's almost like you get to see what it's like if he were buckling down and writing a really serious piece of work with all of the educational background he had and just all of the brilliance that he had that he could apply to it. All of that is true. And yet we also, as you were saying before, he's a little bit of an unreliable narrator. Yeah. And right. sometimes we can't know. Yeah. 
uh, how because, for instance, he'll he'll go from it's all Bozy's fault to, well, no, it's all my fault. At one point, he says, and I'm going to paraphrase terrible as what society did to me. Uh, what was even worse is what I did to myself. Hmm. That he, that he talks about being a spendthrift of his own genius and that he wasted days and wasted nights in the company of people who were not worthy yeah. of an artist of his magnitude. Yeah. And, and he said, I what, never wrote. I never wrote when I was with you. You must have noticed that, that I I never got anything done when I, when we were together. I was too distracted and, and you were too much of a negative influence on my ability to sit down and put words to the, to the page. That's completely right. He would he would go away from London to off to some resort to escape and to write in peace. And Bosey would follow him mm. and and interrupt him. And <laughs> um, and so then you start thinking I or one starts thinking or I start thinking, OK, but you're allowing this. Yeah, right. And and, and in other words, there are times where he breaks off with Bosey, but then he lets him back. It's like an addiction. It's like it, a, it is like I, an addiction yeah. and it goes to it goes to some things that maybe are intrinsic to him, no matter what his circumstance, that it's mm, that it's that, right. that that I feel like there are currents of self-loathing within him that are there for in, in very understandable ways. One of them is uh, that he's Irish mm. and he's and he's among the English. Yeah. Deeply conflicted about that. Conflicted. And once he leaves, he only goes back a couple of times. And it's actually, I think, to settle minor issues from his uh, father's estate when his father died and Wild, Wild got some minor property. And I think he went back. But he never spent much time back in Dublin once he goes to Oxford and then goes up to London. And also, interestingly enough, is he's described as having no Irish accent. Hmm. And he made a joke about it. He said, oh, I left it behind me at Oxford. Yeah. But think about that. In other words, a boy from Dublin who's gone to Trinity, he now gets a, a scholarship to go to Oxford. And he's assessing all the people he's around. There's also something about him. I mean, obviously, there's an issue with being gay in a time where it's illegal to be gay and in a society which uh, is going to have, a, which has not only very stringent laws, but also stringent notions of protocol or decorum or propriety by which people, gay or straight, can uh, exercise their own wills and passions and have society not mind it. What society minded was when these things became too public. Right. If, he's taking, if he's taking illiterate rent boys to the Savoy, that's a step too far. Yeah. So that's another it's another mask he has to wear, another source of conflict for him. It's it's almost like he was he knew he had the talent and the ability to conquer a certain world, this world of of literary London and, and English establishment. He could conquer that. And he did. And that's kind of what he wanted. That was his goal. And it gave him what he wanted in, in a certain sense. But at the same time, he knew that there were some things about that world that were in deep conflict with him and who he was. And it was hard for him to sort of reconcile, you know, the conquering of that world with the idea that, that there were things about that world that he, that would never accept him or that he should, he was in conflict with. Yes. 
and he was calculating about the conquering that he wished to do. Yeah. So, right. so for instance, in these early notebooks, uh, he would be planning out aphorisms to be dropping into conversation later. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and even his first, I mean, you you mentioned in the, in the three trials episode, which I think everybody should listen to, and I agree with so much of your your take about him. But but early on. The first time you mentioned how during the, the, the time of the, the four plays for which we most know him, and he writes them one after the other, and they're all successful. And at the time of his uh, downfall, he's got two running at the West End and one's on Broadway at the same time. But his early, what it interested me about this other project that I've been working on, and I don't know if I'll ever go back to it, is he's the subject, he and uh, Whistler and, and the rest of his circle, they are the subject of lampooning by Gilbert and Sullivan. Hmm. In in the in the operetta Patience, which is the fifth opera that uh, Gilbert and Sullivan wrote together, and so it's a huge hit. He goes opening night to see himself mocked. You know, so <laughs> right. so but 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 all it's like just spell my name right. All press is good press. Is kind of his attitude at that time. And right. then what happens, which is the the crux of this other project, is they're going to send touring companies all around America. And then and then Richard Doyle Cart, Gilbert and Sullivan's producer, realizes nobody's going to know what we're lampooning. How, how, can, how can this be a success if nobody knows what we're talking about? And right. then he gets the idea. Let's hire Wilde, oh. who has no money. Nobody knows him except people in London. And he's kind of a laughingstock. Who I liken him to is the young George Hamilton. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's showing up at, 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 at play openings. He's showing up at gallery exhibits, but he's known as a party goer. Right. He's not known as a serious writer at this time. Yeah. And so what happens is Richard Doyle Cart offers him a lecture tour of America and, and he goes <laughs> and, and it's the first time three things happen. Number one, it's the first time he's got any money. They pay him very well and his lectures are very well attended. Secondly, it's the first time that he's ever required to take all of his thoughts and and put them together in a cohesive form, in a mm. coherent form, because he had to do he's been used to doing one liners to provoke people at parties. But now he has to do one hour of lectures to a paid audience of strangers. Yeah. And so and so he has to put everything together. And, he, and by the time he gets back to uh, the UK, he's got three or four different lectures that he does. And, and this wasn't just to like uh, audiences in, in New York and Boston. Didn't he go to Colorado? And he that's was... what prompted that's what prompted <laughs> my trying to do this play and led yeah. to Colorado. He's and it's the first it's the credit sequence in the Stephen Fry movie. He's lowered into a mine. Can you imagine this? <laughs> In 1881, miners in Leadville, Colorado, having descended like a deus ex machina, this aesthetic figure right. uh, descended and then talking to them in a way that charmed them. All yeah. the reports are that these people liked him. And, 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 and so that's the third thing that was new for him at this time. People were actually listening to him. Yeah. That when he came right. to a new city, if he came to Baltimore or he came to St. Louis, reporters from all the newspapers would be interviewing him. And then what also happened was, let's say the mayor's wife or the leading banker's wife would want him to come to their house because they wanted advice on interior design. Mm. So, so, so those three right. things, money, 
and then having to formulate your aesthetics into a coherent form and then having people respect you, listen to you, write articles about you, interview yeah, you. He, right. he met Walt Whitman when he was in America for the first time. Yeah. Maybe before that, he might have envisioned for himself, well, is this going to be, I'm just the guy who sits in the, in the, in the back row and lobs missiles at the people on stage, but I have something that is of value to people. I can be the main event. Not, not only is that is completely true, and he's willing to dress. He dresses mm. like the character of Bunthorn from Patience yeah. to conform to people's caricature notion of him right he wears the silk the, the breeches and the silk stockings and he carries f a flower onto the stage and in some places um i think the harvard undergraduates mock him and he he goes along with the mocking hmm. yeah right okay so you are picking up the story how do you put all this on the stage and what events are you trying to highlight or or what was I guess, tell me about the process a little bit. Was the narrative arc uh, there for you or did, was that something you had to discover? Is this, do you start in the prison and, and dramatize flashbacks or how do you, how are you able to capture this particular moment of Wilds and, and present it to an audience? Well, over, over a period of time, what I, there were a couple of main decisions. The first decision was the center is this arc that he goes through in De Profundis. Mm, mm -hmm. the, the, so, so I want to show that. Yeah. Now, what do we need to know about Wilde before he gets into prison so that all that he refers to in De Profundis makes sense? And actually the first scene that occurs in the play, which is very, I would be pretentious to say Shakespearean, but let's remember Shakespeare in Cleopatra, in Antony and Cleopatra, he has 43 scenes. Yeah. It's like a screenplay. Yeah. He's yeah. going from one thing to the next. So that's what I'm doing. So because I know the centerpiece of this is this long monologue that Wilde has, what I'm trying to do is have the pace be very quick at the beginning before he gets into prison. And then after he leaves prison, I'm trying to make events occur very quickly also because we're going to have this. So it's like a three act of, yeah, or a three move, right. a three movement symphony where it's going to be fast and then it's going to be slow and then it's going to be fast again. And then it's going to end with this little epilogue. Right. So, so the very first thing you need to know in real time is the publication of Dorian Gray in Lippincott's monthly. And it was published in both London and Philadelphia at the same time. And according to, for a lot of Wilde's friends, they thought he went too far. And so when it was expanded and made into a novel, when it was published in book form, he changed a lot of things at the advice of his friends. But later in the court trial, the counsel prosecuting him, uh, cross-examining him, um, goes back to Lippincott's and calls it the purged edition. Hmm. And Wilde on the stand says, well, I do not call it the purged edition. And the, and the counsel says something to the effect of, I know you don't, but let us see. Hmm. And, and that's where he kind of, uh, has gone, has been a little bit too explicit about gay relationships. And that's what becomes one of the nails in his coffin. Yeah. And, and, and what we also see at the beginning and, and, and what I wanted to do in this play others will have to decide if I've done it successfully or not, is a lot of how we see this is through people around him who often get short shrift in tales of Wilde. It's usually Wilde is, is there, Bosey's there as a annoying, 
orbiting moon around the around the big planet of wild. Uh, but I want to show I, I show a lot. Um, Constance, his wife. I mean, his he hurt his family terribly. He he had so many friends who wanted to help him and he would not let them help him. So one of those people is Frank Harris, who was one of his early advocates and publisher. And uh, Harris is an incredible figure in itself and there's, yeah. in and of his own. And there's actually a um, movie called Cowboy with Glenn Ford and Jack Lemmon. And Jack Lemmon plays the part of Frank Harris. Wow. That, that, that Harris was born in Ireland, escapes as a teenager, runs away from home, goes to America. He becomes a cowboy. Later, he be, gets a law <laughs> degree at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. <laughs> right. Comes back to the UK. And then he is kind of, he's he got this incredible quality of man of the world and the most naive person you'll ever meet. Hmm. He's both of those things at the same time. So when Wilde is being explicit in his writings or making references to uh, boys having Greek beauty or whatever, uh, Harris doesn't take it seriously. Harris thinks Wilde's innocent. Right. And in prison, Wilde has to say to him, a lot of what was said about me was untrue, but much of it was true. And if we're going to be friends, um, you have to accept that about me. And Harris, to his credit, says, I, I do. Yeah. Right. So there's Shaw, there's Constance, there's Robert Ross, who is the most loyal person yeah. to him throughout his life. And then one of the first lines that Robert Ross has in the play is that his his family was under uh, the the a shadow of debt because his father had died at a young age trying to make up the debts of a of an unreliable business partner. Hmm. And then that is actually, I think that's one of the first lines that Ross has. That's actually Ross's fate. He dies at 46, same age as when Wilde dies, but Ross is a lot younger. But he, but he really tries, after Wilde dies in 1900, Ross lives for another couple of decades, spends a lot of time suing and being sued by Bosey, spending a lot of time in court with him. Uh, but also he becomes the father because of, of Wilde's two sons. He he's the one who goes back and and gets back his copyrights. Mm. He he's the one who then begins to produce a collected works edition, and all of that money goes to the two boys, uh, because because the mother um, Constance actually dies before Wilde dies. She dies in 1898. He dies in 1900. So the two boys then live in Switzerland with guardians, and Ross becomes their second father. After Oscar dies and he really is, he's the keeper of the flame. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's everybody seems to come away from it thinking wild was lucky to have Ross in his life and didn't appreciate it enough. Yeah, right. At the, at the time he Ross or Harris or George Bernard Shaw might've saved him. Yeah. Had he listened to them. Yeah. So, but, but, but there's also uh, just one more comment here, yeah. which is there's also something that I've realized in the time that I've uh, produced television shows and worked with a lot of celebrities and Nobel Prize winners and uh, a, a couple of presidents. That which gets you to step A of your reputation or fame, you can't stay there with that. You have to shift and evolve. Or that 
the instinct that got you there is going to be your downfall. Mm. You see that played out over and over? Yes. Right. In other words, in other words, if you're, let's say, a poor person growing up in a tiny town and and you have uh, the ambition to become the greatest rock and roll singer ever or to be a uh, president or whatever. Yeah. That same quality that is driving you to get to a, a kind of peak. If you don't yeah. then shift and gain a new skill, it's going to bring you down. It's why people rightly, some people rightly wrote about Trump. He's going to lose reelection because that which has brought him, brought him the, the, enough votes to win the first time by just appealing to the anger of the disenfranchised white American male, that's not going to get him over the suburban uh, housewives that mm. he has alienated, the the kids, the the the, the collegiate students who've um, who are turned off by him. It's he can't go back to the same well. But that streak in him was what got him there. So why should he change? And and same thing with so many different. I've seen uh, comedians, actors, writers, all, all sorts of different people who can't figure out that shift. Which there was an article in the New Yorker about 15 years ago. And it made this incredible observation that whenever whenever anyone is famous, they are never famous for the same thing for more than three years. Mm. So you're a big fan of the Beatles. Well, they have different phases. Yeah. The mop tops aren't aren't the guys in the Sergeant right. Pepper outfits. Right. And and then the other prime example in cultural history, well, one of them would be Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got three years as the folk singer, and then you're gonna go to to plugging in. And being the psychedelic guy, then you're going to be kind of the country western guy with Nashville skyline, and and John Wesley Harding, and uh, self portrait. Okay, and but then Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra was a genius at rebranding every three or four years. Yeah. When I was growing up, and he was someone who my parents had liked. One a couple a couple years, he's known as Old Blue Eyes. He's known as Francis Albert Sinatra. He's known as the chairman of the board. That, that there is a formal announcing of a rebranding every few years. Right. Okay, two questions about this. <laughs> One is, when you're talking about what Wild had to change or had to modify, are you talking about him personally and his, let's say, his persona, or are you talking about him artistically? And the second question is, do we credit, I know it's kind of a weird word to use, but is the prison experience a kind of driver of this reinvention that actually ended up altering him in a way, at least with the, the benefit of hindsight, that we can look at his, this the phases of his output and say, this actually was probably, in some ways, made him a deeper artist or a... It, it gives us more of a different aspect of wild that we can appreciate today. I think in prison, he went through changes, but may not have changed. Mm. And I think the formal Aristotelian notion of tragedy is that he has one of the things that, that, that Plato, that Aristotle talks about in the poetics is recognition mm -hmm. that, that the tragic hero gets the insight. Mm. 
and into what the flaw is. And then do they triumph about it over it? Like let's say Odysseus, or do they succumb to it because they can't change like Othello? Yeah. I feel like I should ask you a question, but I almost feel like maybe that would spoil your play. <laughs> okay. Is that what well, you, well, you can ask it and then cut it out if you wish? And, and you know, is that I feel like that's that's seems to me like why I would go see your play is to get the answer to that question. Yes, he has it it, it makes him into a classical tragedy. Yeah. His the the recognition the the notion in Aristotle, and you do a very good episode in the very beginning of this podcast, where you go into Greek drama, mm. and you talk and you talk about Aristotelian uh, formulas in the poetics. But but two of the notions are peripatia, the notion of reversal, and certainly on Valentine's Day is when importance of being earnest opens, mm. and and within eight weeks. Every single thing has been taken away from him, yeah. including his including his name. He is called C three three, and so and so the reversal occurs, and then that also prompts the recognition, uh, which Oedipus gets before he blinds himself. You get the recognition of where you are and and how you may have been an agent in your own downfall, and then it's either a comedy or a tragedy on on how you perform after that. Hmm. Well, from the outside, given the language of the work and just the arc of what Wilde was going through, it seems like this would be a play that writes itself. I'm sure it doesn't feel that way from the inside. (laughs) I'm sure a lot more work and a lot more uh, uh, wrestling has gone into it. How can listeners learn more about this play and your other works? Well, right now I'm, I'm, uh, helping produce a uh, uh, HBO show with Bob Costas. The, mm. I would I would point le- read uh, listeners to the yeah. the last the September twenty fourth episode, which I was just incredibly proud of. We had Ken Burns and mm. Rashida Ali, one of Ali's daughters, yeah, on. Right, uh, and that conversation with Bob Costas was incredible. Yeah. And there were two other segments which were equally compelling. We will be doing this through November, at least through November of twenty two, and then. I, I, it's hard to predict what the future of theater is going to be. So yeah, I can't right. say when these things are going, but I've this, I'm going to be doing a reading in October in Washington that mm-hmm. you are going to be coming to. Yes. Um, it'll be the fifth time this has been read. And after each reading, there is usually a radical rewriting and then another reading until I get to a place where I think, okay, this is it. Yeah. And then I start doing it. So I, I think, you know, the title is wild man, which wild men were what, the young exquisites who grew their hair long in admiration of him and tried to dress like him and act like him. Um, it's what they were called, the wild men. And then when he was arrested, they all took the next uh, night train, night boat to uh, France and all got their hair cut and got new wardrobes that were conservative. <laughs> OK, well, that gives me a couple of weeks to grow up, grow out my <laughs> hair before I uh, listen to this. I can't wait. Scott Carter, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Jack, it has been a pleasure. Okay. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wasn't that great? We will cover Paul Auster at some point and Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Why not? Until then, you should check out Scott Carter's streaming play, thanks to the Philadelphia Lantern Theater, available from November 4th to December 19th. Do check it out and do come back for more. We have lots more 
good episodes in the works. My thanks to our emailer today, Anna. Best wishes to you. And my thanks to all those beta readers who are reading, busy reading, <laughs> busily reading the latest Jack Wilson project. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.